Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we are going to have a very interesting founder originally from Iran. I think that we're really gonna learn a lot, especially a lot when it comes to combining biotechnology with technology. So uh definitely a complex stuff, but uh, we're gonna make it simple for you guys. And then also I think also the process of raising money uh and uh, going through the different rounds. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Esam Esfandiarpur. Welcome to the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. So originally born and raised in Iran, in a town that had 150,000 people. Well, there was a lot of pistachio farms. How was life growing up there? It was quite fun, Alejandro. Um, I was born in a family of uh, two teachers. Both of my parents were teachers, and I have three brothers. So um, it was quite fun to to grow up in Iran and in the small town that uh, I grew up at. That's amazing. And obviously, you know, like quite uh, different from your environment now. So um, what, what, what would you say that did you did you know, like early on that you wanted eventually to come to the U.S. or did that just over time, you know, like it just developed that ambition? I would definitely develop over time. I probably... I didn't think of I'm going to come to U.S. probably until I was like, let's say, 20 or 21, that, you know, junior year of college. So uh, I was born uh, in Iran and uh, in, uh, as you mentioned, in South Iran, a city called Sirjan, and I got my high school diploma there. And I went to Sharif University of Technology in Tehran and studied electrical engineering. And the later part of that, um, I think the last two years, I saw a lot of other colleagues were thinking and applying for coming for graduate uh, graduate schools uh, and studies to abroad, including U.S. And then, effectively, that that was got me to think, and that actually got me to uh, to apply. And then uh, I came I came here. So what what really got you into math and physics and and things like that? Um, I was. Uh, my my dad has been teaching, or he he just he's retired now. But he was teaching science in uh, middle school, and uh, um, actually he was teaching biology and physics uh, and chemistry for middle school students. So probably that had 
played a role. And also, when I was in high school, um, I loved math and physics. These two were my first two subject areas that I had the most interest in. Um, I didn't know a lot about probably biology and chemistry. They were doing okay, but not not the top. And then uh, that got me really to the math and physics. I feel that like you know math is one of the areas that give you um, is uh, is you a very different perspective around the way that the world works. And physics is a mathematical model of the world that we live in. Got it. And obviously, after you did your university there in in Iran you started your first business. So what happened with this first business? How did you, you know, come up with the idea and, you know, told yourself, hey, let's let's do something around this? Sure, yes. Um, yes, I, I actually was in a freshman year in college uh, when I was looking around. Uh, and then back then, this is the year 2000. And uh, I, I was thinking about, what is the quality of the internet that has been provided in, in actually my hometown when I was in Tehran? And I called a friend of mine who was in Sirjan and I was telling him that, can you do, you know, basically providing him some specific questions to do some market research? And uh, can you figure out basically if the quality of this internet provider that exists there is good enough and if people are happy and if there's opportunity to do something there? And um, after a while that we did some studies, it turned out that while there is basically some providers who are offering internet, but the quality and service is not uh, the best, and there's opportunity to actually provide something better and you know improving on that. And that's how uh, we basically put uh, a plan together. I actually did some some study of uh, figuring out what needs to be from a hardware perspective so you know buying a uh, the internet back then was quite a little internet so i think it was 164 megabits per uh, bit uh, per second of internet that we we bought and then we were putting a bunch of routers and um, the computer and the dividing those in 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 pieces and start uh, printing cards and selling those and uh did some math about how much it cost to really build that, and I needed some money for uh, setting up that uh, business. So so far, I just had a sense of how much it could cost. So I called my dad and I told him that that I wanted to start this business. You have uh, in Iran's currency back then, you know, it was basically four million tumans. You know, it's a different currency, so it's very different to basically compare it here. And I was asking him, do you have money to basically? give me to set up that business. And he he told me that, he laughed and he said like, oh, I don't have the money, but I'm not sure if I, I had the money, I was giving it to you. I said, well, thanks for the support. And he said, no, I'm kidding. But if you need to get it as a loan from somewhere, um, I can co-sign for you and then get it from a bank. But my suggestion is that you go and find a, a co-investor, so-called, or investor for your business first. If you cannot find it, then you can go and get the, get the money from the bank. So I called the same friend. And I told him that uh, there are some people that I knew in that network and uh, had some credibility with them. So I was asking that, can you check with these and that people to see if they are willing to uh, basically partner with me and uh, support this endeavor? And then uh, he said, sure. 
Then next day he called and he said, actually, my dad had a house that he recently sold and he has some money and he wanted to actually partner with you if you are up to that. Uh, so we are interested ourselves. I said, that would be perfect. You're, you're my friend. And if you can do it actually together, even better. So uh, the, he put effectively the money and I was doing most of the work associated to set it up. And then we, we basically co-founded the company and I was the uh, CEO chairman. He was president. And then we started running it. We hired some people and setting up the, actually the, the first part of that was in his grandfather. A house that we put the modems and everything related to that one and we got a store to start selling internet and long story short it was not a big business but it was a good experience for me and actually uh, very quickly it turned out to be cash flow positive and we were able to actually that that helped me for most of my college uh, and graduate school admissions when i was applying for us and canada schools to come here that was paid from there and some other travels and uh, the money that they needed. So that was a fun project. And, you know, I learned a lot from that. But in so it, seems like, yeah. it, it seems like exciting times here. So so then why did you start thinking, you know, about, hey, maybe, you know, I should go to grad school in, and go to the U.S.? The, great question. Actually, I was, I probably was very interested to go and uh, go to grad school and get my Ph.D. from early on. The question of coming to U.S. or doing it over there was probably always um, on my mind. When it comes to the graduate school quality and the research, Iran is pretty good for undergrad and probably up to you know high school or maybe you know bachelor degree. But beyond that, is not uh, as advanced as as U.S. specifically and several other areas in the world. So the amount of the amount of opportunities existing in the in the research side is is not comparable even uh, to that. So that's what one of the main reasons that they felt that for me to continue learning and I need I need to do it in a uh, the best class places such as you know I was fortunate to come to Stanford and it was a it was a fantastic experience. So that that was basically the reason. And talking about Stanford, so uh, you get on a plane with eight thousand dollars. You barely speak English. So um, on your way to Stanford, and uh, you know, obviously, you the idea was there. You know, to you got the promise of a professor to give you a scholarship, but I mean, it seems quite a quite an adventure. So, Esham, so tell us about this uh, this experience. Absolutely, it was definitely a, a, a very adventurous time, um, and then the the whole um, time that basically we were, you know, I I I was. I was having, you know, uh, the the belief that in the long run it's gonna things are gonna work out in the right way and in the best way. But definitely there was a the big, um, the, a lot of unknowns, and I was probably both young and adventurous, and you know took the risk of, uh, you know, giving it a shot, and then uh, things worked out. I mean, when when uh, and that's that's the part that. We don't have a lot of control of what is happening to us. We have control in some of the areas of what we're doing, and that's where we can make our decisions based on. And some of them are not in our control, so we can't do much about them. And then that's my mantra uh, about how, I, I, uh, how I've been <coughs> taking this, uh, actions or making decisions when it comes to business or personal life. So uh, one of the areas here was that 
I knew that I wanted to go to Stanford. I knew that I wanted to get my uh, my PhD in the, one of the finest schools that I was very lucky to be at. And uh, did I know about ten years or fifteen years? Uh, fifteen years later, I would be running a DNA sequencing company. Absolutely not. I could not even guess that. But um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, you you do your part, and the rest is take care of itself. Absolutely, and and all your uh, brothers and sisters—they're still in Iran. Um, I don't have sisters. I have three brothers, and no, actually, all three brothers of mine actually they followed my path. They all came to Stanford. They got master wow. PhD also from Stanford as well. Um, one of the second, the one right after me, after his master and PhD and a postdoc, and he was at Stanford as a research staff scientist for a few wow. years, and now he's a professor at the UC Irvine. The next one, the last two, both are, one of them did a postdoc at Stanford, uh, but both of them are uh, as a, in the CTO office of KLA Tanker here in the uh, Silicon Valley as well. So, yep, from the family standpoint, we ended up all being here. Got it. I mean, because when, when you probably go back to your to your town, you know, 150,000 people, you must be like the Enrique Iglesias or the Jennifer Lopez. Eh? Everyone <laughs> must be like, wow, the celebrity, you know, coming from Silicon Valley, no? Yeah, well, um, th definitely there are not that many probably families who've been lucky enough that all of all four of them ended up being, you know, uh, uh, coming to U.S. and study at Stanford. So from that standpoint, we definitely have been very fortunate. And just out of curiosity, if I was to ask your parents, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you know, like I'm, I'm a father now of three daughters. And, you know, if I was to ask your parents how they were able to raise you guys to, uh, you know, end up being so successful and, and coming from a place of 150,000 people with pistachio farms, you know, around, you know, how were they able to raise you guys to really, you know, bring you all, you know, to, to make it to Stanford? You know, one of the most difficult universities to get into. How, how did they do that? Well, um, that's a great question for them, for sure. Um, I can tell you that one thing that they will tell you for sure is that, like, um, if it was not for the, um, you know, we were all lucky to get, you know, scholarships and then be able to come here because of, in no circumstances, my parents, uh, my parents' uh, salary could ever uh, basically support that. Uh, I think even today, my parents are... I don't know, again, it's a very different country and they're living a happy middle-class uh, life. And then, uh, but probably if you translate it to the dollar, I guess the, the average salary monthly would be whatever, $500, something very, very small. Um, the, 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 the main thing that I think they taught us, uh, two things, they were very, um, they have a very high work ethics And then when they were both teachers, but they were working, they really, we always learned from them that no matter what you, um, you know, you wanted to do the best on whatever you do. And that was, that was, we were seeing them as the live role models for that example. They were so dedicated to their work uh, and how much, uh, you know, how much they really cared about being really a great teacher and really being helping the students that they were teaching and second is that really the focus on science and focus on education my i remember my dad was saying that like they never told us go and study or not study they were like i don't remember ever there was any pressure on that 
um, you know, I was joking that if probably you were asking my dad in the third year of high school, if he knew which year I am, he probably will say like, hmm, maybe your third year, maybe your fourth year in high school. But like, you know, they were just in playing in a way that like they were just completely hands off. I'm sure in the back they knew what's going on, but they were very much not pushing us or pressuring us. But they were always defining a you know high bar that we can be good and successful. And I remember from early days, our role models always were like Edison, Einstein, Marie Curie, like the people who were very much in science and dedicated their lives into that area than you know anything else. So. And frankly, those are some of the areas and some of them, I'm sure we were, we were lucky. There are a lot of great people and a lot of smart people who are working very hard and just, they were not, things doesn't, you know, one or other incident happened that they don't get the same opportunity that we got. So I think it's a combination of many things, but for sure, I would say that their focus on science and then, uh, you know, high, you know, having high ambitions and. My dad was always saying that you should really plan to reach to moon, then maybe you get to you know you get to the clouds. But if you're planning for the if you're planning for the clouds, you probably are not going to get much much higher than where you are. So absolutely, absolutely. So so then let's go back here to the story of uh, of Stanford. So then you know you go to Stanford, you do electrical engineering. Uh, you do also your your management, you know, science and engineering. And then, you know, like one thing that is interesting here is that in addition to doing your PhD in electrical engineering, you also decide to do a little bit of med school. So tell us what is the combination of all of this, because it seems like you literally like touched on on almost every single, you know, faculty of Stanford. What happened there? <laughs> For sure. I, I I remember at some point, actually, I had. I had more than three offices in three different departments. And then people were asking me why you need uh, multiple offices. I said, like, that's the way that you never will be find which office you are actually at. So um, the, um, uh, the, the, my, my story of getting to healthcare was actually a personal, uh, personal one. I, a family member of mine was misdiagnosed at a really young age, uh, age of 15. And then... That, and then several other incidents happened that got me to really think about um, medicine and healthcare and genomics particularly. As you know, genomics is basically high-resolution biology. It's looking at the information about our, our body and the world around us in a very high-resolution way, in the molecular level. That's just the highest level of information that you can really look at. I mean, cancer is DNA disease. This recent coronavirus the outbreak that we hear is a little virus that's really creating all of the mess that uh, the, t- uh, the world is really dealing with. And then f- the best and only way to really understand and be able to respond to all of these situations is through genomics, is through understanding and reading the DNA. And I'm looking from, uh, I'm looking at the semiconductor and I see all of the advancements that exist there. There is like, you know, you have uh, the capabilities of, Effectively, some conductor technology can can build uh, transistors and sensors that are only a few, you know, hundred nanometer or tens of nanometer in size. Effectively, in the molecular level sizes. And then, um, in two thousand one or two thousand two, IBM published a paper 
wrote IBM, I believe, with 18 atoms. It was like quite impressive how much we can do in a nanotechnology and, and uh, semiconductor. And then, uh, you know, the, look at the iPhone and internet and all of the capabilities there. I'm, I usually make a joke says that if Steve Jobs claimed to be a prophet, I was in his religion because of just such a, such a magical, magical um, device. I mean, there's so much, as an electrical engineer working on wireless communication and chip designs, I can tell you how much technology basically went to this gadget called iPhone that really changed our lives since 2007 and onward. And now you're looking at the medicine and genomics, you feel that we're still in the very primitive uh, ages. Like we barely have the technologies which can be low cost, deployable in a very decentralized fashion. So historically, biologists have been looking at things through microscopes. And then wherever you wanted to uh, basically read those, you can attach a fluorescent tag and you know take basically images with the various uh, re- uh, wavelength and then uh, basically colorful images with the fluorescent version. So basically moving from microscopes to cameras. But, um, and if, even if you wanted to read the DNA, that's the way that you do it. You use a high power laser, you have these fluorescent tags, and then you are using a camera and a scanner and robot. And so that caused a big, bulky, expensive machine, mostly in a range of a million dollar or half a million dollar machines. And these instruments, every time you want to run it, you have to spend also multi tens of thousands of dollars, at least uh, multi thousands of dollars to spend on every time you turn it on. It's like a printer that every time you want to print something, you have to use a very expensive cartridge, but also the printer itself is a million dollars and it's the size of a refrigerator or sometimes, you know, um, room size historically. And coming from electronic background, the first idea and simple idea comes in mind is that why not measuring the electrical signature of the reaction and using the technologies that really has been developed uh, for the past 40 years and marry that part, marry the technology and biology together. I can tell you that this is quite a bit of fun. It's not necessarily easy that like it took us almost 16 years since we started, but it has been very rewarding. So I brought that idea to head of Stanford Genome Technology Center, Professor Ron Davis. And Ron is a very well accomplished scientist, which I have uh, a lot of respect for and has been my PhD mentor. So Ron looked at the um, idea that I was sharing with him and he quickly grasped it. He said that if you can build these, if you can really use semiconductor technology to read DNA, that would be PC in the world of mainframes when it comes to genomics. And that can have tremendous applications for healthcare, for diagnostic, for effective uh, diagnostic and monitoring it, for personalized medicine and developing various drugs, and also in a very non-healthcare applications for food testing, for agricultural biology, for forensics, for environmental. So you should work on that as your PhD project. That's how the journey started. I made a change from radar to DNA. Effectively, I was working in wireless communication and radars when I started at Stanford. And then uh, it has been a very amazing ride for the past 16 years, for about six years at Stanford and the past 10 years at Genapsis. And that has been... Right. So then, um, so in that case, Hassan, how does it go from, you know, here you are in Stanford to all of a sudden you find yourself running a business? It's been a lot of great learning. It's been a very humbling experience for sure. You know, again, uh, working with a great uh, number of 
scientists and engineers in literally 12 different disciplines. Again, from hardcore chip design, we are developing chip. In the, our product actually has a, is a little box that the size of a footprint of a, an iPad, which costs less than $10,000. And the consumables of this box, when you're trying to run it, is a semiconductor chip, which is effectively similar to the technologies that you, know, you can find in your laptop or your iPhone, and also a cartridge, a, a chemical cartridge, that is coming with it. These two effectively are the consumables of the uh, running on this machine. And that machine reading the DNA of the sample that put on this chip and then analyze that one and provide the data. So you have a hardcore chip designers, effectively folks who are normally working at Apple and Intel and such. And uh, you have people working on hardware, software, microfluidic, surface chemistry, enzymology, and also data science, uh, machine learning, bioinformatics, and so on. And it has been very fun to be both forefront of the advancement in science and the interdisciplinary nature of these, and also really develop it around a very specific product to put it hand of people. And that product needs to be high quality and you know very robust and low cost and uh, easy to use and all of the different aspects of a you know, requirement for a product for 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 the customers, and uh, uh, I can tell you that it's been a great learning experience on a daily basis. And obviously, everything started with a, quite a, a little bit of a roller coaster with a product launch. So, what happened there? Sure. Yeah, the um, these, as I just described, the type of product that we're developing is very. Um, very disruptive and very uh, revolutionary from the standpoint of building something which is going to be 100 times cheaper than the million-dollar device and still providing a very high-quality um, very high quality DNA sequencing and capabilities of reading that and many other uh, aspects to get these in the hand of every researcher, every doctor, one per, at some point every person wherever they need to read the information, which we needed for 10,000 different reasons. And really being on top of that and building something very competitive has been um, a very interesting uh, and great mission and also quite a bit of challenge associated to it. So given this is interdisciplinary, when you're doing the product development planning, when things are going in parallel, then you have a timeline associated to it. Like, you know, you can basically write down, this is the pieces I need to do in the software side, and this is what I need to finish in the, you know, instrument UI and the cloud and whatever, and machine learning and bioinformatics. You have another one for, like, this is how I design my chip and tape, it, tape out the chip and, you know, fabricating the chip and do this and that. This is the part related to the biology of sequencing chemistry and amplification and whatnot. And then... Each of them, there are different groups, some of them interdisciplinary groups, sometimes like, there's a lot of interfaces with them, but they're very clean and clear who's supposed to do what. Now, suddenly, if one of these happened to have a glitch for one reason or the other that you may or may not be able to predict or control, then a lot of this parallel plan ended up to being in serial mode. And that completely take your timeline out of the window because it was much more difficult now to you know, then you need to have somehow catch up and that ripple effect of that glitch on other areas, which are not the core, for example, software part, is going to be a, is going to be a basically creating a big mess. 
And that has been, uh, we of course had several of those experiences over the course of nine years that we developed um, our product. For example, one of the things, and this is one. And second, we're in the forefront of the science part of things. Sometimes we don't know what we don't know. For example, we develop something in a particular with a particular milestone. And until we got to that milestone, we didn't even know if the second part going to be, you know, as we expected or not. It's not equal, but think about if you're developing a drug. You don't know if you have a pharmaceutical company and developing a drug, if it's going to work on the animal trial or as well. And if it works with animal trial, you don't know it's going to work on the human trial as well. You only know it when you are at the human trial state. And there's a little bit of a similar aspects exist when it's a multidisciplinary nature of things, and you're pushing the boundaries in the technology development. So when these things are happening, then it can cause a lot of you know, uh, disruption on your, your operation. Number one, you, in this situation, you need more people, not less people. But for you to be able to actually get there, you need to have resources, including capital. But if you are somehow hitting the, you know, this type of roadblocks, that means that your timeline and milestones are uh, down to the water. So raising capital is going to be much more difficult because of, again, you were thinking about you would be able to do X, Y, Z in that time frame, and some, somehow those time frames are off the window. And th there is a chicken and egg, and there's a lot of challenge, and it requires almost... Uh, you know, a constant dynamic perfection of choosing your priorities and just be very ready to make decisions as needed to be and potentially change dynamically the plan to make sure that you are really taking the shortest path or at least to the level that you can achieve the short path to achieve the milestones and then get some additional resources, then go one step further, and then do the one more time and go one step further. And that gives you, that's a roller coaster. That just a very, um, it requires a lot of uh, persistence. And, uh, you know, at the same time, you need to just check all the time to make sure that you're not, you're not repeating a mistake and you're not aware of it. So, um, and that has been definitely a, a great, um, I would say that fun, stressful and rewarding when you get what you need to get. I mean, the moment that the door opens up and you see the progress that like in the areas that you've been working on for maybe six months or 18 months, then that's, that's the best gift that you can get. Absolutely. So in this case, Sam, how are you guys making money? We are, um, in our business, we are selling the, the sequencer. Actually, we have two devices that we are selling, sequencer and sequencing prep machine. That's, uh, you know, the upfront portion before sequencer that doing the preparation of some of the steps. And also we're selling the consumables, that semiconductor chip and the cartridge that they mentioned earlier and associated basic consumable. So you're buying the, if you're a customer, for example, you're buying the machine. Each of these are less than $10,000. And then you're coming and connect them to the wall. This is a little box. It's very cute and then it's connected you know it's very much you don't need another server or another computer for it to be able to operate it and also for ease of use and all of additional aspects it enable cloud connection as an option as well which you can have access to your data anywhere you want and then uh, the uh, the consumables you put the sample in that chip you put the chip in the machine and the cartridge and you're running it and the customers when they wanted to run additional samples they just buy the consumables 
So it's a razor razor blade model. Got it. So obviously when you are combining biology and technology, uh, that equates to a lot of money that is required to, to, to build things up. So how much capital have you guys raised to date for this? So we to date uh, raise uh, quite a bit of capital, uh, $240 million, if I um, do all of the math correctly. About 135 of, $135 million was equity, uh, and the rest is non-dilutive money, including some of the government grants. We've been very lucky to actually see uh, NOH who supported us at Stanford uh, in early years of business. They continue to uh, support us because I think they believe we're doing good things for the healthcare system and for the society. And uh, you know, this is this is a very exciting endeavor. I mean, we've been we've been one of the lucky ones to be able to get to this stage, and it's a very exciting time for for the business. So I guess uh, for a company like this, you know, like as opposed to, let's say, like the traditional ones that you see there in California, like the, let's say, the SaaS or the marketplaces, like when we're thinking about, let's say, biotechnology or health diagnostics or, you know, really, really a company like, like Genapsis, you know, in this case, like what are the typical expectations that, you know, investors are going to have? So um, you mean in sense of the exit strategy or uh... no? From because obviously you guys have done multiple rounds, right? So you know since you started raising money, you know early on, then you went through the Series A, the Series B, and the Series C. What what were some of like those those things that that investors were looking for, or perhaps you know because obviously you know raising money is all about addressing the concerns that you have in between, right? So. What yes. were typically those concerns that, that you needed to fulfill in order to really, you know, get the investor aligned and, and get sure. that money? Sure, sure, absolutely. I think that there's a couple of areas there. I mean, uh, but the, mostly investors are looking at definitely one is the, uh, the, the the market opportunity. The reality is that when it comes to DNA sequencing, there are not that many DNA sequencing uh, companies in the world who can read DNA especially they can read the DNA accurately. So in the whole planet, we're talking about, as we speak, the companies who can read DNA accurately, we're talking about four. Um, and then, you know, uh, basically that we are one of the four companies who can read DNA accurately. And we are actually the, pretty much in the top of the list with the a market leader right now. So having the capability to read DNA accurately is a very... Uh, when I'm saying read means sequence the DNA. Sometimes you can read a single base. That's a technology like PCR or microarray, but that's just not uh, not the uh, next generation sequencing is the is the best way to really collect the information and read the sequence or read the whole information from the DNA. And the investors are looking for a uh, making sure that your science and technology is sound, and that's normally is a you know is a pretty high bar and not necessarily easy things to show, especially in the early days, because of a lot of chicken and egg. So you have to be able to, you know, work again on the specific areas and show them that because of these data, we know that we're going to get to the next point. Right now, of course, is much easier because of now we have finished the R&D. We have the high accuracy technology in hand of customers that the investors can easily just call the customers and then tell them that 
you know, what is the quality of the, you know, Genapsis data versus the legacy technologies out there. Historically and normally, developing a DNA sequencing uh, platform or if companies in this type of bioinstrumentation, you know, high, high precision molecular uh, devices, the, uh, they take eight to 10 years before they get in hand of customer because there's a lot of work needs to be done before that, a lot of interdisciplinary work. And that's definitely probably the highest bar to really show like the difference, I call it, between science and pseudoscience, you know, to really show that this is, this is solid and real. Second is that, okay, well, now if it's solid and real, how is the market for this type of product? Where exactly this fits comparing to other offerings that exist in the market? And especially if there is monopoly situation sometimes, there's going to be a lot more, um, a lot more resistance from investors and showing them that you have a way to succeed in that market and convincing them. And um, I think that has been very much every stage of the business depends on how the, the global, basically, environment around this type of offering has been. And third, showing that actually genomics is one of the areas that is expanding in a consistent way. And actually, we are in the tip of the iceberg. Just imagine that if we had DNA sequencers like Genapsis DNA sequencer in every hospital around the globe as we speak, or even in every airport and everywhere else, probably we were dealing with this pandemic in a much faster and much more appropriate way because we could sequence the sample of the people, you know, from the cheek swab or nasal, and then be able to get the information and, you know, basically do a quarantine of anybody who has it in a very precise way, rather than trying to look at the thermometer and not being able to find the, the sources. So that's, that's, uh, that's basically the areas that really uh, is important. And uh, I, I have to tell you that also depends on the stage of the business, the type of investors who have the stomach or interest in these type of business, I call it a high risk, high reward type solutions because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a high capital gain requirement, there's a long journey or uh, this is not necessarily the same investors as the SaaS investors or the people who wanted to just get a quick, quick, um, uh, quick turnaround or quick, you know, flip basically in a business. So I guess, uh, you know, like obviously, you know, imagine, you know, one thing that comes to mind here is, let's say if you go to bed tonight, Sam, and, and you wake up five years from now. So imagine it's a super long snooze that you take there and you wake up in a world where the, vision of genapsis is is completely realized what does that look like then it means that you have a little box in your pocket similar to your iphone maybe a little bit bigger maybe a little bit smaller and that one you can actually um you you can spit in part of a little card and put it in that uh, little box a little device and then can read your dna and rna and protein and information that you're looking for uh, effective in a couple of hours and it can tell you that if there's any, you know, uh, weird germ basically around your kitchen or uh, bathroom or not. That means that if you're going to a subway, you can do the same thing and actually you can use it for various type of applications that the world needs. So in the world that uh, we believe that reading the 
biological information, I call it, like a molecular information. We're, we're, like, we live in the whim of the molecular world. We have more mo mo uh, biological uh, molecules and then cells and live materials around us than the cell in our body. We have 38 trillion cells in our body. We have more microbes in our gut and the cellular body table that they have this laptop on is made of, you know, wood that has DNA. The cotton on my shirt has DNA. The coffee you're drinking has DNA. Like just living this information. And we are quite blind to these informations. If you have a gadget, can read this information low cost, easy to use, and high quality, there's a tremendously different world you can uh, envision. And that's really what Genaps is trying to enable and offer. And let's call it the iPhone of genomics or PC of genomics. And then along the same line, we have been working very hard to enable this cloud database that's going to be a central repository of the data that these information for the customers who are basically sharing that information, they can tell us a lot more about how which mutations are exactly representative of breast cancer or prostate cancer or not. Actually, how this example of an outbreak of coronavirus, how this coronavirus is mutating over time or over geographies. These information are missed. And in the ideal world uh, that Genapsis vision will be realized, that would be a world that you have similar to the digital information that the PC and iPhone enabled would be molecular information that Genapsis product um, has enabled. I mean, we are entering a multi-decade era of genomics, which revolutionized many industries, healthcare, food testing, agricultural biology, forensics, you name it. For enabling that revolution, you need an enabling tool. You need that high-quality, easy-to-use, low-cost gadget. What we have developed at Genapsis and we're you know, delivering through the pipeline of products that we have, enabling that revolution for those applications. Very cool. Very cool. So, so Hesam, so let's say, you know, now knowing what you know now, because obviously this is your second rodeo, you've been at it since 2010, but if you had the opportunity to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, with that younger Hesam, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a business and why? Um, I would say that the advice, that's a great question. The advice that I would say to the you know a younger Hassam would be, uh, first of all, um, focus on the important areas. Not uh, there's a lot of questions, especially if you are a founder, that you feel obligated on every line of question that you have an answer for, and sometimes you're trying to over optimize on some stuff that is not as important, and. That's that's one thing that you know. I would say that you want it to be much crisper and much more focused of really focusing on the twenty percent uh, that give you the eighty percent rather than other way around. And second is that when opportunities comes around, grab them. Don't uh, you know? Don't basically wait or don't um, uh, don't wait too long because of you never know when it's coming back or you may lose the opportunity without uh, specifically naming. Uh, um, you know, particular individuals, but I can tell you that, for example, in the very early days of Genapsis, I had one of uh, one of the great people who actually um, it was an advisor to me and Genapsis, and um, and then uh, helped me on the strategy side was a gentleman by the name of Umid Kordestani, who is the uh, 
I don't know if you know Umid or not. He was an early employee at Google and he was SVP of marketing. And you know, and Umid, um, a lot of time Google founders called Umid Google business founder because he was the first business person from Stanford MBA joined them with a lot of experience and he was with Google for a long time. He's now executive chairman of Twitter. Anyway, so early days, Google um, Umid was helping me in some of the some of the strategies and advisors. And one of the time I remember. There was some particular very high quality, high uh, profile individuals that um, were interested potentially in the you know seed investing at Genapsis. And I was rather than trying to focus on getting those high profile people associated to the business, I was focusing on um, a particular threshold of investment needs to come from them. Otherwise, it wouldn't really work from us. That was a mistake, in my opinion, when I'm looking back, for example. I'm just trying to be as objective on a specific examples. So the reality is that what I needed to focus on, for example, was trying to think about what would be the big picture um, value that such relationship can bring for Genapsis, rather than trying to stick to a very near-term um, objective that it was focusing on. So anytime that you sit down and pause and look at the long road that you have ahead and trying to think about how it's impacting you is giving you perspective. And definitely that would be my advice to, to younger Hassam and saying that, you know, trying to have more pause points and, you know, get away from daily um, chaos and trying to uh, put things in perspective, you're going to make a better decision. Got it. Super, super profound, Hisam. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, they can always uh, email me. And then, you know, I, I think that would be the best way to, if somebody would be interested to have a, uh, any question they have or they have a further discussion, uh, you know, my email is my first name at genapsos.com. So happy to answer any question. Amazing. Well, Hisam, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Of course. Thank you, Alejandro, and hope you have a wonderful day. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.